Probably just not going to live where people tra- tramp around all the time. It's after midnight, sure. a warm summer night in Texas. Oh, I'm definitely not going back on the trail by myself to find scorpions uh, in the middle of the night. We can look around. Okay, let's not go too far, though. Ow. We set up camp in the Chisos Basin a few hours ago in 114 degrees. Let's just, like, look around here first, see if we find any scorpions. They're trans... Why do they get translucent? And tonight, I'm a scorpion hunter. You see one? They're well adapted to living in virtually every environment on Earth, including deserts. Uh, my name is Lauren Esposito, and I am the curator of arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. So I am a scorpion biologist. That's my, my main trade. Do they not come out during the day, Jonathan? Do we know? They don't? I forget why they don't, but no. And they're translucent at night because they're black in the day. Right? They kind of camouflage. The photos I was looking at, they were black. In particular, I study bark scorpions, which is a group of scorpions m- distributed from s- the southwestern United States through northern South America. So the, luckily in Big Bend, there's a, there's a species that is called the striped bark, bark scorpion. Oh, we have two flashlights? Yeah. Nice. Good job. Get away from me, bugs. I hate it. You're listening to Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios, brought to you by Subaru. I'm your host, Misha Youssef. This episode, we're in Big Bend, traditional land of the Humanos, Lipan Apache, Kualatikan, Mescalero Apache, and the Chiso. I think you'll just see them sitting on rocks, but I really think we would have to go on the trail. Okay, we can start going like a little further away from our campsite, but I don't know if I'm down to go all the way on the trail. For me as a child, like Big Ben was the pinnacle of nature. It was like the place that you went if you really wanted to see some incredible, unique stuff. And a place that's already really incredible and unique, the Chihuahuan Desert is like a magnificent desert. Big Bend is the highlight. I mean, it's definitely like one of the crown jewels of the Chihuahuan Desert. She's so right. I can't see anything right now because it's pitch dark. But in the daytime, when we set up camp, this place is stunning. Surprisingly lush, too. It almost looks like someone let Bob Ross go happy little tree crazy on a painting of the desert. So my average field day looks like a hiker, like I'm walking around, except and I hike really, really slow because I'm stopping to like flip over every single thing I see. Um, so I'm like the, the slowest hiker ever. And to be honest, during the day, it tends to not be super fruitful for scorpions. At night is when it's really exciting. Let's just keep going. I'll let you know my comfort levels. <laughs> I'm going to bring a real light. Yeah, a headlight just in case. We don't have to turn it on, but... How big are they? They're big. Like, like I said, they're really Oh, really? Oh. 
These bugs are all over me because of the stupid light. No moon is when it's best to see them with ultraviolet lights because they're quite dim lights in comparison to the moonlight. Um, but it's also when they're the most active because predators can't see them as well. And so they'll just be out like sitting on rocks or at the entrance of their burrow just doing like waiting for something to walk by and they're just sitting there waiting for me to find them. It's amazing. Oh, what about here? Oh, I saw one. It's right here. I see it. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Is it getting hurt because of the light? No, right? I'm not hurting it because of the light. Can you take a photo? Yeah, I'll try. Holy fucking shit, Jonathan. Holy shit. Oh my god, that's my first time in my life seeing a scorpion. That's my personality, apparently, according to the zodiac. Women are definitely the dominators in all arachnids, virtually. Like, they're, they're the ones just choosing based on the fitness of the male. And, and the way that, that scorpions court is the male will approach the female. Hi. Hey. Uh, usually he starts this, this behavior called juddering, which means he's, like, kind of shaking his legs. I couldn't help but notice you. What? And what that's doing is transmitting an acoustic signal to the female because they have like little ears in their feet. And she hears the juddering and understands that it's a male approaching for courtship. First, like I should say she's bigger than him. So it's like risky business for him to approach her because she could just decide to eat him. And scorpions are in fact like can be cannibalistic. I could kill you and eat you. So it's like he's taking a big risk in approaching. And so he needs to send a signal to her that like communicates what this is about. He'll approach her, like, face on, and then he reaches out and grabs her hands. Or we could dance. And now they're, like, facing each other. And then they essentially engage in, like, what looks like a ballroom dance. Like, if he gets tired really fast, or if he's not very strong and, like, good at, like, leading her on the dance, then he's probably not the best father for her offspring. Yeah, I mean, he knows we're here. He's, like, ready to fuck us up. Yeah, his tail is, like, going fucking crazy. He's a little guy. He's very small. Wow, he's ready to beat us up. Yep. But he can't move that fast. He's like an insect. Yeah, he's just, like, waiting. Yeah, his tail's curling like a cat almost. Oh my god, guy. we saw one. I really didn't think we were going to see one. Big Bend is really interesting because it's sort of the northern part of the Sierra Madre Orientalis, um, which is a mountain range that extends um, north to south on the uh, eastern side of Mexico. I'm used to deserts with cacti and Joshua trees. This place is changing my definition of the word desert. There are prickly pears and tall yellow agave plants towering over me everywhere. And trees, like tall, normal, non-succulent trees. There are mountains, giant peach-colored rocks with hints of black and gray, hints of blue. But like every desert I've ever been to, 
Big Ben's true beauty is in the change of the light throughout the day. The trees, the rocks, the agave flowers, the mountains, they all take on different colors depending on how the sun reflects off of them. It's subtle, but breathtaking. And at night, the blue takes over. At the top of this mountain range, there's the geology has created this sort of perfect storm where things that were slowly evolving and, and dispersing up the eastern side of the mountain range and things that were slowly evolving and dispersing up the western side of the mountain range like sort of come together right at the top. And that's where Big Bend is. Um, and so this is where species that have been separated for a long time by this huge mountain range come into contact with each other. Did you think it was going to be this small, or you thought it was going to be bigger? I think they're going to be bigger, actually. They tend to get a little bigger. This is probably a little guy. Baby? You think it's a baby? Yeah. Holy shit. Wow. This is legitimately one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. Can you believe it? I found it, too. Do I deserve credit? I, like, really can't believe it. I know. I didn't expect this, honestly, to find one. Same. I, it was meant to be. I was meant to experience this for myself. Let's go find some more. No, we're going back. We found one. Really? Yeah, dude. I'm not going back. On, I'm not going on that trail at night. <laughs> I'm not that. You can go. Let me know if you're alive. Okay, so you're going to judge me, but I don't really care. I got super into astrology during the pandemic. I went from knowing I was a Scorpio sun, but not really caring, to... You know what I did with the national parks. I found out my sun, moon, rising, did a whole birth chart reading, bought a couple books, read them cover to cover, and started judging people based entirely on their zodiac signs. Just kidding about the last part, unless you're a Gemini. Like I'm using my phone app to figure out what these stars are. Ursa Major, it's a bear. Anyway, being out here in Big Bend, looking at the stars, it's kind of hard not to ascribe meaning to the constellations. I mean, we use them to navigate. All kinds of animals and insects use the moon to orient themselves. Okay, I'm gonna keep looking. You know, for centuries, astrology was considered scholarly. The Hindus, the Mayans, the Chinese all studied and trusted it. Virgo, Libra. <gasps> it wasn't until the scientific method became a thing that astrology lost its cred. Oh my God, dude, we're seeing so many. But. I don't care about its cred or what scientists think about astrology. What I love about it is that it orients me in relation to things outside of Earth. When I'm reading about it, I'm a part of something bigger, a part of what's in the sky. Oh, what did we just see? A scorpion? Scorpius? Scorpio. This is my first time seeing Scorpio. And I can see it. Dude, I can fucking see it. So cool, it's coming over the mountain, too. Oh my god, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> and sometimes I like it better up there. So it's around 8 p.m., night two of our Big Bend trip. We're at the McDonald Observatory on top of a hill outside of Fort Davis, Texas. You can see the stars. It's not even fully dark yet. Venus over there. That's Venus? How do you know? It's really bright. 
<laughs> uh, Venus is the brightest thing in the sky aside from... I'm Stephen Hummel. I am dark sky specialist for McDonald Observatory, the University of Texas at Austin. And no, Stephen is not an astrologer. He's a legit scientist. My job is to help raise awareness of our night sky and the, the value of darkness uh, and so solutions and strategies uh, to address light pollution. Big Bend and the surrounding areas in West Texas, they're officially considered dark sky regions. And you might be wondering, like me, um, aren't all skies at night dark skies? Apparently not. There is really nowhere left in the continental United States where there is no trace of detectable light pollution. For that, you would have to go to north on Alaska or the middle of the ocean or something. Basically, a dark sky region is a spot where there's minimal light pollution. It's a sky where, like tonight, you look up and you can't even begin to count the stars. Um, and the, the constellations are hard to pick out because there's so many stars, you get lost. And Big Bend is one of the national parks in America that's a dark sky park, which means people come here from all over the world to stargaze. I grew up in Dallas, in the suburbs of Dallas, under very light polluted skies. My dad had a telescope uh, and he, he showed me Jupiter and Saturn and things. I remember that very vividly in our driveway, looking at, at, at Jupiter and its moons with our little telescope. I still have that telescope. Uh, I do remember being very young and looking through uh, one of the old visitor center telescopes, which isn't here anymore really, um, at the Sombrero Galaxy. And I had no idea what I was looking at. I knew it was called the Sombrero Galaxy because that's a pretty memorable name. But I remember looking at this faint, fuzzy little gray splotch in the telescope eyepiece, realizing that that is a galaxy. A system of billions of stars, millions of light years away. I got it at that moment. It, it left an impression on me. It didn't just leave an impression on Steven. It kind of changed his entire life. In this part of the country, he's the guy for dark sky stuff. And he now works at that same observatory he used to visit as a kid. What is this thing called, this whole setup? It's called the All Sky Photometer. It was actually developed uh, by the National Park System. The sun just set. The sky is massive, a bit cloudy, with streaks of hot pink and orange. A couple stars are peeking out. And Steven is standing next to me, over six feet, in gray jeans, a black baseball cap, and a denim button down. He's rolled up his sleeves and is staring straight at a laptop attached to a camera on a tripod. He's looking very hero scientist from a 90s movie. Yeah, this is usually a solo job. Um, once this is set up, it runs itself. Steven's measuring the amount of light pollution in the sky, how much there is, where it's coming from. First... He orients the camera using Polaris, the North Star. That's how the computer knows where we are, because we're in this super remote spot and there's no Wi-Fi. Power. Then the camera makes some camera noises. It starts taking a bunch of photos of the entire sky and piecing them together. The computer then takes the photos and turns them into numbers and data that, to my normal brain, make no sense at all. Sometimes the raw data isn't really very interesting to look at, um, even if it really is interesting. It's getting a bit darker. The sky is turning from orange to a darker indigo. And my brain is turning to mush. Because I haven't gotten any sleep. 
Everything we've done in this park has been at night, and the daytime is way too hot to sleep inside our tents. Uh, I am going to be heading up to work on the dim up there. Would you like me to radio before I turn any lights on after it gets a bit darker? Yes, please. Thank you. Before coming to Big Bend, I had never thought about the importance of darkness. I mean, in normal life, my instinct is to run from darkness, to turn on the light. We're only now beginning to realize in the past like 10, 15 years, light pollution uh, is really a pollutant and that it is affecting all sorts of wildlife in ways that we never really quite understood. All life on Earth, for the most part, evolved under a cycle of day and night. And with more light at night, we no longer have to rely on, you know, the, basically that cycle, uh, which can screw with all sorts of things. Um, there's actually more nocturnal species now than there were a, de- a century ago. It's because they don't have to, they, they don't have to, uh, you know, live uh, under dark conditions anymore. Deer and uh, raccoons and squirrels and birds and all sorts of things, some of which are up at night anyway, but more of them are more active at night because there's enough light for them to see and it's when humans aren't around. You know, loud, annoying humans bothering them. We really have fundamentally changed uh, the environment in a lot of places in the world that a whole animal can basically live in an environment that it is not evolved to at all. Some can adapt to live at night, but even then that's, that's a survival technique. That's, that's getting by as opposed to dying in a lot of cases. Uh, and so a lot of species aren't as lucky. Um, insects being one of the main culprits. And you know, for most insects, they, they see a bright light and they go towards it because that's, that's something ingrained in them tells them to do that. Uh, and in most cases, if say you see that moth circling a lamp or something outside, it's not going to live to see the morning. It's going to either overheat from that light or exhaust itself to death, starve itself because it's so confused. And without insects, that, that means birds can't eat, that messes up a broader food chain. So even species that aren't directly affected by light pollution probably are, are related to or rely on some other species that is. It's almost 10 o'clock. Oh my gosh, that's a thing. So, that's a little creature. What's that? That's a little creature over there. Is it a skunk? I can't. Oh, it's a skunk. It is a skunk. Uh oh. Uh oh. Oh my god, I don't want to. I don't want to get sprayed. Every, no, I'm getting walk. behind everyone. Calmly walk. Away. away. Yeah, Jonathan, yeah. let's walk away. I got excited. Maybe it's a No, I'm pretty sure it's a skunk, and I really, really am not trying to get sprayed. Yeah, that's a skunk. It's just kind of ignoring us. I hope so. Yeah. Is shining our light going to make it want to spray us more? Uh, it probably won't bother him too much since it's red. It's definitely yeah, he's coming still coming towards, on, us. towards us. Okay, should we walk yeah, further just away? Yeah, walk a little bit. <laughs> Is this going to mess up your observations? Well, if he keeps moving through. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm like, if we all, that's like, that would be a lifetime first. Okay, so 
finally, the skunk left us alone. Or maybe it's just waiting in the shadows for the right moment to strike. I don't know. Um, I was kind of curious because you come up here alone a lot, you said. Do you feel scared to come up here ever? No, I, well, sometimes. I'm, I'm kind of comfortable with, with it, though. I have heard, say, like mountain lions in the distance. Uh, <laughs> How did you know there were mountain lions? Well, and during mating season, they sound like um, like a woman being murdered. It's a horrific shriek. <laughs> uh, it's very recognizable. Um, and but I think there, I think having a place where that sort of primal fear can still exist is is, some, is something kind of magical in a way and important. Like. I, yeah, like, yes, a mountain lion could uh, potentially hurt you or kill you, but um, it probably won't. It's, you know, it never really happens. It's never happened here. Um, but I think there is something to that feeling that is part of the human experience, and it has been part of the human experience for millennia, and it's really only over the past hundred or so years when that hasn't been the case for most people. Um, that that idea that there, you know, there there are things out there which could hurt you. I, I have respect for the mountain lion. You know, that's that's part of its existence. Is it is a predator, so I, and it has a right to exist just as much as we do. Yeah. All right. Move the camera off. Steven's back to collecting data, taking pictures of the sky. And at this point, there are bajillions of stars. I'm really exhausted, but my eyes have somehow adjusted to the darkness. Point it down at the horizon again. It's not really brighter, but it feels brighter. Like the bluish starlight is enough to see everything. I barely even know the names of any stars. Like I couldn't pick a favorite. Really stupid question, but like, do you have a favorite star or constellation or? Yeah. You do? Yeah, and Teres is one of my favorite stars. Uh-huh. It's my second favorite to Betelgeuse, which is in Orion. But, uh, and Teres is the, is a similar star to Betelgeuse. It's a red giant, red super giant. You can tell it's kind of reddish colored. Mm-hmm. If you look carefully, you stare at it. A red super giant is an older, wiser star absolutely losing sleep over not having started a 401k already. Probably still has Facebook. I don't want to interfere with what you normally do, but... No, yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll see it. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes, uh, Antares is the brightest star in uh, in Scorpius. Mm. It looks, of all the constellations, it looks the most like the thing it's really named after. Scorpius looks like a scorpion. This is the heart of the scorpion, Antares, sometimes called the heart of the scorpion. Uh, here's its head, and here are its claws. Very long claws extending out into the sky. Um, and it's also a very massive star. It will eventually um, explode and die uh, in the future when it runs out of fuel in a few million years, which for a star isn't that long, but uh, for us is. So what happens when it dies? What well, happens to Scorpius? 
Well, it would never look the same. It would lose its heart, wouldn't it? It would explode in a supernova. It'd look very bright. It would be very obvious uh, in the sky. It would be brighter than Venus was earlier. Uh, and eventually, over a few months or years, it would fade away completely. As a child and an adult, the stars are something I've taken for granted. I know some basic stuff I learned in high school, like stars are born, stars die. But I've never really taken a second to think about what that actually means. They age. They have phases of life. Stars, they're just like us. I mean, astronomy is, is the oldest science. It's been around f- as long as people have had eyes to look up with. Um, people have been studying the stars, drawing their own meanings from them. Um, and we continue to do that today. Um, but I think people are losing touch with the sky uh, and, and the role it plays in, in, in our lives and, and how we and our sense of where, who we are and what we are in the universe. Um, so if we lose the ability to look up, I think we, we lose something, uh, something deep within us, some, some sort of sense of who we are as a species if we, if we can't connect with where we are. Don't be afraid of the dark. <laughs> um, it, let your, just take a moment, if you come out here, to just, just sit in darkness like we are now and, and realize that your eyes are way better than that you think they are. It's incredible. Leo, Libra. <gasps> Sagittarius. Oh, that's, 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 that's um, space station. That's an international space station. My eyes feel like the stars at the end of their life, heavy and about to explode. It's one in the morning, and we're ready to go home. We walk back to our car in the dark, just our quarter-sized red lights lighting the way. Three in the morning, we finally pull into camp. All right, it is sunrise. Just got out of my tent. It's starting to be sunrise. I think we're like 20 minutes away. I'm up with the sunrise the next day. Um, haven't slept in like the last hour and a half because I thought there were snakes circling my tent. I'm doing a five-mile solo hike, so I can really get my eyeballs all over this place. The sky is really beautiful and pink. Okay, see ya. Of all the parks we've been to, I'm most excited to be in Big Bend. Mostly because the park is in Texas, and I've always had this romantic idea of the American West. The land of cowboys with tall boots and big hearts in pickup trucks or on horseback. Clear eyes, full hearts, and all that. This is the America of the Eagles and Clint Eastwood. The America that compelled my 16-year-old dad to ask his neighborhood carpenter to make him a guitar from scratch. The America that brought my whole family here in 2003. And here I am 
ready to hike all by my lone self Real good idea. in the Lone Star State. We're here at the trailhead, walking down these stair-like ah. things. And that is the poop of an animal. That is the poop of a large animal, human-like. Looks really fresh. Okay, I'm just gonna grab beer spray. Mountain lion. Keep kids close to adults. No one Hike else on the trail so far. Okay, saw a rock look like a bear. Got freaked out. <laughs> I want to do this alone. I'm not ready. Okay, so I get back to the campsite. Jonathan, I'm not going alone. <laughs> Honestly, I just saw poop and I was like, I can't do this. You want me to make you some coffee first? I have coffee, but I'm okay without breakfast. I can wash the dishes. And Jonathan is enjoying a leisurely morning with a watery coffee. And the temperature is climbing quickly into the 90s, on its way to the hundreds. I'm like, why am I not courageous? I'm just not. I can't do it. Jonathan's like, but we can't leave yet. We have to see the fossil discovery exhibit. And I'm like, I've slept maybe like three hours, dude. But sure, let's go look at some dinosaur bones. The sun is blazing. So it kind of feels like a gift to step inside the exhibit into the shade. The exhibit itself is half outdoor, half indoor. And the hours, I love this, dawn till dusk. When you walk up, you see a giant dinosaur skeleton at the entrance. It's metal, copper in color. And the whole thing is set up as a timeline. It covers the last 130 million years, showing all the different phases in prehistoric life. If this park has done anything to me, it has completely changed how I see time and space. It's kind of a trip in the best way. Okay, we are here. Welcome. Welcome from ferocious sea creatures to massive dinosaurs and tiny early mammals. Big Before Big Bend, I had never heard the term deep time, which one might think is time to get deep. But no, 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 no. It means the whole span of time that Earth has existed. Deep time. Planet Earth was formed uh, four and a half billion years ago. When Earth scientists talk about deep time, we do mean that billion to millions of years history. Wow, how cool. Around 100 million years ago, a broad and shallow sea covered Big Bend. About 76 million years ago, the Rocky Mountains began to rise and the sea retreated. Big Bend was on the coast. This lush desert used to be the coast. California, Arizona, they were underwater. If a dinosaur wanted beachfront property, Texas was it. It's a rare dinosaur fossil in California for that very reason, because most of our region of the far west was underwater. My name is Dr. Lisa White, and I'm the Director of Education and Outreach at the University of California Museum of Paleontology on the Berkeley campus. Lisa is more into earth science and fossils than I am into astrology. She loves geoscience, and she wants you to love it too. 70 million years ago, the mountains rose like higher. Rhinosaurs, rhinoceroses, 
rhinoceros. So cool. Like They're birds that look like unlike anything I've ever Giant seen. Giant like elephants, a, flying or a lion, even like a small little fox-like creature, but very different looking. And with the, the power of all of the tools we have at our fingertips and the way the National Park Service has really invested in these uh, interpretive exhibits so that one can have a sense for what the landscape was like 100 million years ago. Wow. 100 million years of fossils from Big million year old trees. The exhibit is so cool. What? 80 million years old? Like, who doesn't like a good fossil? 130 million years at Big Bend. At the okay, yard. me, like an hour before this. But I'm growing. 40 million years ago, there were volcanic highlands. 130 million years ago, there was a marine environment. It's hard to keep perspective when people are throwing around numbers like 100 million, 75 million, like it's 30 years or something. To understand, Lisa says, think of a calendar. If we compare the four and a half billion years of Earth history to a single calendar year, it is a wake-up call for how little of those years of Earth history there has been life. Month one, January. Wait, no, actually, there were definitely not crickets at the beginning of time on Earth. No life in January. February, March, none in April, May, June, not in July or August. In the 4.6 billion years of time this Earth has existed, there was no life for most of it. And then we get some bacteria, some single-cell organisms, maybe a little cyanobacteria, and then... Animals without backbones that lived in marine environments. October, November, and December. About halfway through December, we get the dawn of the dinosaurs. Mid-December, people. But by Christmas, they were extinct. Can you imagine in this calendar analogy to four and a half billion years of Earth history that the dawn of the dinosaurs and the end of the dinosaurs took about two weeks on a year calendar. And so for human evolution, we appear about a minute before midnight. So the first hominids are at, you know, 11.59 p.m. on December 31st. The entire history of humankind is one minute at the very end of the year. Just one minute. Our generation is less than a second. It's like 0.0075 of a second. Even the, the dinosaurs that we think is, you know, so ancient and so prominent for so long, they're even they're limited to about a two-week period, you know, in December. Big Bend, back then, was home to so many incredible creatures. Four, ten, twenty times larger than Amisha. Mosasaur. Name means lizard found near Moose River. Moose River. Moose wow. River? So these guys were air breathing, but they were marine lizards. And they look like, or they're related to today's It's fascinating that parks like Big Bend, you know, can, can capture all that, capture that history. We walk outside to the top of a hill nearby. It's where the last sign of the exhibit is. Whoa. 
The view is gorgeous. You can see all the mountains. For a long time, we didn't know exactly what happened to the dinosaurs. We knew they died, obviously, but we didn't know how. We didn't know why. Then like 40-ish years ago, a geologist named Walter Alvarez and his dad, they came up with this hypothesis that the dinosaurs all died in a mass extinction event. Those were the dudes who said it was an asteroid that hit the Earth and spread so much dust and debris through the atmosphere that the Earth was taken over by darkness. No sun, no life. Most people think this isn't the only factor, but it's a big one. Of course, not everything died. Enough things survived that we were able to evolve from what was left behind. It is scorching at this point. I can feel my back burning as we head back to our car. And everyone here is feeling the heat. Oh, that's so smart. The umbrella. I have lupus and doctor says stay out of the sun. And you came here? Of course. (laughs) I love it. I love the spirit. In the one minute that our species has existed, we have completely changed the course of our planet. We've found a way to wage war over anything and everything. What we have done with our one minute is the most impressive and depressing thing I can think of. If some other species is wandering through the same land 65 million years from now, what will they find in our wake? Plastic islands? The mass extinction event that killed the dinosaurs, that blocked out the sun, that created so much darkness, also created us. We're possible because of the darkness. We're made of that darkness. Okay, so we drive out of the park to Terlingua, Texas. If I thought I was in a Western, now I'm really in a Western. There are literal saloons and green border patrol cars everywhere. You know how after you've been traveling for a while, all you want is someone else to feed you? Preferably your mom? Like, no shade to the freeze-dried spaghetti and the hot dogs, but I need a meal. We stop at this little bar and grill, the Starlight Theater. Man, sometimes you can't write it better, you know? Everyone else in this place is white. Jonathan and I sit at the end of the bar. And when our food arrives, the man sitting next to me looks over, and he's like, that's the best thing in this place. Best thing on the menu. He has sandy blonde hair and a mustache. He wants to talk, and I'm ready to listen. He tells me about how the best years of his life were when he was crabbing in Alaska. Up with the sun, out on the ocean... He tells me about the most beautiful creature he's ever seen, an albatross. Not because it's the most exquisite animal, but because of how it moves. Gliding through the air as if thinking alone keeps it in flight. This guy is really giving off big cowboy energy. He eventually asks us where we're from, and I say Los Angeles. And of course, he's like, ugh. He says something like, 
You two seem nice, but don't bring that California bullshit here. And then he immediately starts talking about gun rights. Like one minute, we're in a poem, and then boom, guns. I'm kind of into it. I mean, because we're not fighting or debating. We're just talking, laughing. Like, I love this guy. You know, I spent a year in my apartment talking to people through a computer. When what I love about my job is talking to people in real life. Anyway, almost all the people I've talked to so far on this trip, it was totally planned. Like, I had to talk to Shelton Johnson. I needed to talk to David Troyer after I read his books. But this cowboy, with tall boots and a big heart, I mean metaphorically, he was just a happy accident. And it's moments like this that seep under my skin, where I feel what makes Texas so special. It's the subtle sunlight filtering through an agave flower in Big Bend, and the scorpions glowing under a black light, the stars and fossils that place us in something bigger than ourselves, the cowboys who remind us that we're sharing just a nanosecond with each other. And that nanosecond, it contains a lot of darkness, but it also contains beauty. Anyway, we're off to Glacier. Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios is brought to you by Subaru. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Our executive editor is Arwen Nix. Jonathan Shiflett is the senior producer. Elizabeth Nakano is the producer. Francesca Diaz is assistant producer. Ariana Garbley provided additional production help. This episode was written by Arwen Nix and me. It was sound designed by Arwen Nix. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Carly Bond is the composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer and did our artwork for the series. The illustrations on the artwork are by Joshua Ariza. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, our development and operations coordinator at Dustlight, and apprentice Matthew Lai. From REI Co-op Studios, executive producers are Chelsea Davis, Joe Crosby, and Paolo Matola. Kirsa Berg is the podcast production intern. <laughs>